it's kind of a fear of the unknown. They've got no idea what goes on inside those blood centres. And so they're imagining all sorts of terrible things. And I think if you ever mentioned to someone that you were going to donate blood, particularly for a first-timer, you know, people tell you horror stories about blood donation. And so this is adding to your anxiety because that could be you. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we chat with Professor Barbara Massa from UQ School of Psychology. Barbara's research uses psychological theory to solve social problems and for more than 14 years, she has collaborated with a range of industry partners, including the Red Cross Blood Service. Barbara, welcome. Thank you and thank you for having me on. Now, there was a concerning statistic that led you to get involved with the Red Cross. Can you tell us about that and the role psychologists play in blood donation? Well, I think there are many concerning statistics when it comes to blood donation. I think the fact that one in three of us will need a blood or blood product and around one in 30 of the Australian population actually donate blood shows you there's going to be a massive shortfall. And yes, we can actually persuade more people to literally roll up their sleeves and donate a small, a relatively small amount of blood. It is only a small amount of blood and half an hour of your time. Why don't more of us do it? There's a whole range of reasons. Um, so I think primarily when people think about donating blood, if you ask people, is donating blood a good thing to do? Pretty much everyone's going to say, yes, it's a really important thing to do and we should definitely do it. But then... There are things involved with donating blood that really pe put people off. So we know lots of people don't like needles, okay, and they don't like the idea of a medical procedure that perhaps is unnecessary. So normally when we have a needle stuck in us, it's because there's something wrong or they're trying to find something out. But this is a needle that you're volunteering to have stuck in you. And that's a little bit odd and a little bit off-putting. But we can go, well, actually, no, still really should give blood. It's a good thing to do. But you know what? So there's this needle thing going on. And I'm actually really busy. I've got a lot of things going on in my life and, and I've got to find the time. And so it's half an hour and then I've got to think about well, the parking and I've got to think about booking in. And a culmination of those things coming together makes it just often put in the too hard basket to actually go ahead and do. So do 100% of people who make that um, uh, appointment to donate blood turn up? No, they don't. Um, so for first-time donors, we know that between about 80 or historically about 80 to 85% of people who make an appointment actually present to donate blood. And so there's a whole group of people there who, who go to the trouble of making that appointment. They've taken that first step. They've gone, yes, this is a good idea. I should do it. People need blood. Perhaps people I know need blood. And so I'm going to book it and make an appointment. And then for whatever reason, and I have some ideas why not, they don't actually present to donate blood. And that's fine. I guess you could think, well, other people could donate blood. It's not just me. It's not just down to me to, to keep the blood supply up. Other people could go and donate blood. Or it doesn't really matter, but it does. Because you've got people who are waiting for you to present to donate your blood and you don't turn up. So they're stood around and they may have other people waiting, which is great, but they may not. So it's a waste of, of their time, really. Um, so we've become very interested in this, this sort of magical, you know, 15% of people who don't actually present to donate blood, even after they've gone to the trouble of making an appointment. 
And what do you think those reasons are that they decide not to come along even after they've called up and, and booked in that time and made that um, Red Cross resource, taken that resource up, I guess? I think it's a, a case of that, again, you know, they think about it. They're obviously motivated to make that appointment for a reason. Uh, rationally, um, we think it's a good thing to do. We have positive attitudes towards it. People around us think it's a good idea. And for lots of us, it's perfectly doable. You know, there's a centre nearby or there is a mobile unit nearby. So rationally, everything looks good. And then you make that appointment. It's a bit like me going to the dentist. So I have a, an awful fear of dentists, which is awful, really. You know, but I know I should do it. So every six months, I make my appointment for my checkup. And then as the time approaches and I get closer and closer to that appointment, I think of all the reasons that actually that day is not a good day. Um, I could reschedule the appointment. I could just not show up. And what's happening for me and what I think actually happens for a lot of blood donors is that anxiety is building. So I'm moving from that effectively cold, completely rational state in which I made that decision or I made that appointment into this sort of slightly anxious state, which is effectively very hot. And what that means for me is the things that are influencing my decisions are not rational things. They're not my attitude. They're not my belief I can actually do it. They're kind of this bubbling away anxiety. And so then when you have that anxiety and you think, well, I don't really want to do this, there's all these rationalizing thoughts that come to mind, which is I could just cancel. I mean, it doesn't really matter. If for me, it's a dentist would be, what is six months and one week? That's not going to matter. And for many people, first-time donors, it's kind of a fear of the unknown. They've got no idea what goes on inside those blood centres. And so they're imagining all sorts of terrible things. And I think if you ever mentioned to someone that you were going to donate blood, particularly for a first-timer, you know, people tell you horror stories about blood donation. They've all had a friend. It's always a friend, you note. They've all got a friend who've experienced something extremely unpleasant. Maybe they fainted. Maybe they didn't feel very well. And so this is adding to your anxiety because that could be you. So we try to intervene, if you like, to try and allay some of those fears and try and provide people with mechanisms to build their confidence to actually try to donate. Because that's important for the Red Cross. They, they need those people to turn up to those appointments. So what sort of tools or what sort of protocols have, have you suggested to them that might help get those people to their appointments? It's really very simple. So what we wanted to do was to come up with an intervention that could be easily rolled out across the business. So it couldn't be too complicated. It couldn't be too resource intensive. And we really came in on a number of key points. First was education about what actually goes on. So you walk through the door. What's the first thing that happens? What are you going to see? What will you experience? And I think the inspiration for this coming to be very important to me was I was driving one day with my children. Uh, who at that time were about eight and six, and we drove past a mobile unit on the side uh, of the, the street. And I said to them, because we were waiting at traffic lights, what do you think goes on in there? And they said, people go in and we never see them come out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you've got no idea what actually goes on in there. You have no idea about the process, about how long it takes, about the fact at the end there's a cookie and there's a drink. You just see these people disappear. And they never come out. And to a child, that's quite disturbing. I mean, we understand the notion of what goes on perhaps a bit better. But for children, they were like, they're never coming out. And of course they do. So for me, it was important to kind of demystify the process. You walk in, you check in, you sit down, you fill out some paperwork. It's very 
um, routine, in fact, almost boring, I think, in terms of what actually goes on. And then we wanted to talk to people, I guess, in these materials about, well, look, if you're feeling a bit anxious, what can you do? What can you do with that anxiety and how can you turn that into something that's not going to deter you? Because we know that being anxious when you present to donate blood can actually lead you to have a negative reaction to donating. So if you feel anxious, then you're more likely to experience something we call a vasovagal reaction, which is when you feel a bit faint, a bit nauseous. So if we can get that anxiety down, you're going to have a much better donation experience. So what we wanted to do was have in our materials things that could actually address that anxiety uh, and build someone's self-confidence to actually attempt the process so that they know that if they started to feel uh, maybe a little bit dizzy, there were things that they could practically do while they're in the donation centre to stop having a negative reaction. So we gave them some tools. We talked them through things as simple as distraction, uh, things like applied muscle tension, where you tense your muscles, which elevates, uh, where it stops you feeling faint. So we gave them these practical tips. So we constructed a brochure, uh, which we delivered. Uh, we ran an intervention trial, obviously, and we delivered either this in hard form, so actually hard, you know, snail mailed it to people, uh, or we sent it via email. Uh, and then people either got a phone call from the National Call Centre or they didn't in this, in this experiment. And in the National Call Centre, we scripted it very carefully. So this was a, you know, hi, just ring, you know, see how you are. But then we got uh, the people in the National Call Centre to try and address people's concerns. So if you say to somebody who's about to donate blood, how do you feel? They'll say fine. They probably won't go into the you know, details of what they're feeling. But if you say to them, well, that's good that you're feeling fine because a lot of people will talk about how they feel a bit nervous or a bit anxious. So we scripted the call in this way and lo and behold, people said, well, actually, now you mention it, I'm really a bit and, and told what was going on. So we scripted responses to this about how people could overcome their anxiety as they approached it. And what were the outcomes of using these two simple tools? They were really very promising. So in every condition whereby we had either a brochure uh, and a phone call or, or a phone call in some instances, we actually got a positive result. But our best result came in the condition where we gave people an electronic brochure. So just an email uh, that they could click through. Uh, and they got a phone call from the National Call Centre. We managed to increase attendance rates in the trial from 85% in our control condition up to 92%, which for something that costs pretty much nothing, it's just a change in business as usual practice we were pretty happy with. And so was the blood service. So after the results of that trial, they rolled it out nationally uh, and uh, took, I guess they were encouraged by the fact that pretty much either one of those tools had some benefit. Um, and in fact, in January this year, we got some more good news about that particular trial, which is um, the uh, when they did an evaluation, they were noticing something really odd in their vasal vagal reaction uh, rates amongst first-time donors in that they dropped. And when they looked across the business, they found the only thing that could be accounted, uh, that it could be attributed to rather, was the rollout of this particular intervention. So not only did we get more people turning up, but those first-time donors were suffering less adverse events. Um, and again, the numbers aren't massive, you know, we're not, you know, but as you roll that out and if you sort of generalise that across the whole of the blood service, then for pretty much nothing, uh, nothing more than a little you know, tinker, if you like, with, with standard procedures, we've actually got quite a significant result in terms of making the first-time donor experience better. And how important is that first-time experience for ongoing blood donations? It's absolutely critical. If you don't, if you have an adverse reaction to your first-time donation, 
you are very likely not to come back. And first-time donor retention is a massive issue anyway. So you have anything between 30 and 40% of people who give a first-time blood donation don't come back within two years. Um, but if you have an adverse event when you donate for the first time, I guess it makes logical sense. You know, you've done something, it wasn't good, you're probably not going to go back and do it again. Our interview with Barbara got us curious about what it was like for first-time blood donors. We asked around the office and eventually convinced Katrina, one of our digital marketing officers, to come into the city here in Brisbane and donate blood for the first time. Katrina, how are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. We'll see how I'm feeling in 10 minutes time. Um, I have an appointment at 11.15. Do you have some ID with you? Yes. We'll need you to fill up all sections, A, B and C. Okay. Alrighty. Part A. Alright, have I ever donated blood before? That's a big no. And why have you never donated blood before? Um, I don't love needles. <laughs> Not the biggest fan of needles. I do get a bit shaky. Um, have I ever been advised not to give blood? No, that's just a personal choice that I've made. <laughs> Before you came here, what did you think would happen when you got here? Um, I don't. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I hadn't really. I hadn't, about it? I hadn't really thought about it. No. I guess I'd always thought I should, but then it was the um, the community obligation versus personal preference to not have needles stuck in me that I didn't need to have <laughs> stuck in me. So I'm just filling in all of the conditions, illness or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So far nailing it? Yeah, doing good. Really no reason for me to not donate blood at the end of the day. Medical questionnaire. Am I feeling healthy and well, other than the nerves? Yes. <laughs> and don't forget to keep drinking water. Because mm -hmm. we want to get you up on that fastest leader wall. It's not a goal you knew you had, but it's a goal I'm setting for you, Katrina. It's a new goal. It's a new goal. Hi. Hi, Sally. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Now, first time donating today? It sure is. Perfect. Ooh, this swabbing. is just antibacterial, okay? Okay. So just relax, girl. Okay. Just relax. Just think about all the chips you're going to eat afterwards. Don't think about blood. Oh, party pies and sausage rolls. Yeah, the cups of tea. Um, the the fact that we're doing saving. this on work time. Yeah. Oh, the lives you're saving. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I think when she told me that they're taking 500 mils of the blood. But you've got heaps of it. I know, but then I was looking at my 600 ml water bottle sitting on the desk. Don't do that. Oh, that's a lot of liquid. <laughs> And you're done. Okay. Is that that bad? Needles in? It's in. It's in, yeah. Okay. That's it. That's the hard part. So now they're just sucking it dry. Just like a vampire, but <laughs> more professional. <laughs> and they give you a meal afterwards, so I really don't know what you're complaining okay. about. That's We're true. on our way. Look at that. Delicious, that juicy blood. That is. Wow, that's coming out quick. And it you is. didn't even notice it happening. Yeah. How did it feel? Um, much better than expected. Yeah, so it was basically a pain-free eight minutes and then maybe the last minute or two was like a bit more uncomfortable but not like life-ending. No. Yeah. So you're going to give blood again? Yes. Yeah, it was definitely a lot easier than I thought. And you've got an excuse not to do any gym for a couple of days. Yeah. I think she said a couple of weeks. <laughs>
And you were complaining about your veins. And look at that. Beautiful plasma. Veins. Beautiful, beautiful veins. So you've been quite successful with the blood donation study and uh, increasing or allaying people's fears. Can this now um, be related to other areas in donation? Yes. Uh, so we, we work across the entire breadth of the donation experience. So um, anything from recruitment, which is primarily where sort of the anxiety is the major driver, uh, through to retention of, of blood donors uh, and, and everything and anything in between. Um, we're also really interested in people who are deferred. So if you've deferred for a short period of time, so maybe you've had a tattoo or a piercing, you know, you can't donate for a certain period of time, but the chances are that you might not come back. So how can we encourage people who've been deferred for a really short period of time to come back and donate again? So we've worked across pretty much every aspect of donor recruitment and retention uh, in blood, whole blood, which I think is what we traditionally associate when we talk about blood donors. But also we've done an awful lot of work in plasma donation, which is a real growth area uh, in terms of uh, blood product donation. We, we desperately need more people to donate plasma and the barriers uh, to that behaviour are somewhat different to the barriers to whole blood donation. Are these the same barriers that people face with living donation, so stem cells or organ donation? They're probably closer, but they're not the same. So the stem cell donation, organ donation is, if you like, a, a harder behaviour again. Uh, plasma donation uh, obviously takes place in the same uh, location as whole blood donation, uh, but the process is a little bit different because you're having your red cells return to you and some people don't like that. They don't like the idea, take the product, by all means, take it away, but don't put it back into me. And so we've done a lot of work around looking at what people think about the return process, what they think about the process as a whole, uh, and again, working with uh, those donors to encourage them to return. And in fact, the research that we've conducted in Australia, uh, looking at voluntary plasma donors, so these are people who don't receive any payment, obviously that's, that's the way we do blood and blood product donation in this country. Um, the body of work we've done here is probably most, uh, the most substantial body of work still in the world looking at how to encourage plasma donation in that context. So they take the red blood cells out. Why do they put it back in? Uh, it, it means that you're retaining more of yourself, if you like. Um, so by putting the red blood cells back in, obviously you're not stripping out the iron from the blood supply. So it's generally a less intense process on the body and lots of donors who donate plasma speak of that. They speak of the fact that they prefer to donate plasma over whole blood. It also means you can donate more frequently. So you can only donate whole blood once every 12 weeks, but you can actually give plasma in this country every two weeks. Uh, so there's that opportunity to give is sort of more frequent and some people really like that. How did your partnership with the Red Cross begin? It began a long time ago now. Um, so a colleague of mine in the School of Psychology at the time uh, was doing some vol uh, volunteer work uh, for the blood service. So she was helping redesign their donor uh, questionnaire. And I think the blood service in Australia is one of the few blood services around the world that's had a keen interest in donor behaviour for a very long time. So we're going back 15 years now. And they wanted to increasingly know more about their donors. Um, and at that point, they didn't really have social scientists on staff. And so they were interested in working with us in a consultancy uh, manner to see if we could help them with some of the projects. 
And it really just grew and grew from there. There was a want to know more and more about different aspects of donor behavior. And so we started working more in a traditional research capacity and that led to linkage grants. And I've been very fortunate to have three linkage grants with the blood services of service over the years. And we just became, or I just became more and more involved with what was going on in their organisation. And doing applied work is very complex. It's very different to basic science because not only do you have to think about all the things you take into account when you're designing basic uh, experiments, for example, but you actually also have to think about the lived reality of how this might pan out should it actually go across the organisation. So you have to work with lots of different divisions and you have to work with lots of different people to get an understanding of their world. And it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And so I became more and more interested uh, in it and spent more and more of my time uh, doing it. And um, I hope, I think, (laughs) that the blood service saw that this was a a beneficial partnership to maintain. And so uh, that led to the creation of the Australian Red Cross uh, Blood Services Chair in Donor Research, which was advertised through UQ. And... Future's looking very bright because you've had a promotion as such. Yes. (laughs) Can you detail that? Yes. So this is a a really good opportunity. So this is a a joint chair uh, between the Blood Service and the University of Queensland. Uh, And I have a vision, I think, as we all do for where I'd like to take that. So we've done a lot of work in blood and blood product donation. But as you look around the medical Um, area, I guess you can see that donors are all over the place. And these are people who are giving part of themselves to help others become well. And yet we don't really hear about the donor. We assume that the product just turns up on the bench or at the bedside or wherever, and it all goes from there. And we know a lot about transplant surgery, and we know a lot about recipient of of, uh, transplants, but we don't ever hear that much about the donor. But the donor is an incredibly important part of this process. Without the donor, we have nothing else to do. So why don't we hear about the donor? Why don't we hear about the donor's well-being? And what can we do to really enhance the well-being of the donor in terms of their experience and in terms of um, what they want to give to someone else? And that's really what I want to focus on now. Um, The first place we're really going to go is to another area of the blood service, which is looking at uh, bone marrow donation. Uh, So they are housed within the blood service, the Australian Bone Marrow uh, Donor Registry, and looking at what we can do there to help them in their process. And again, it's, you know, you work in this area for a long time and you think you've got a grip on it and you start talking to some people and you're like, I know very little about what you do. So there's a massive gain I've got to make in my knowledge. Um, but also in spreading that knowledge around. So looking at how they interact with donor, looking at international best practice and what we can learn from uh, international and uh, their best practice to bring back to blood and to bring back to plasma so we can apply those knowledge and really just getting those sectors talking to each other. Um, We're also uh, looking at other forms of living donation. So living organ donation, not deceased organ donation, because that, again, is a very complex area uh, in terms of there's lots of different decisions that need to be made there, which are incredibly challenging. Uh, So looking at, for example, um, sibling donors of stem cells, um, and there's lots of complications in those uh, relationships, as you can imagine, that the sort of becoming a stem cell donor for a sibling is a little bit different to becoming a stem cell donor for somebody you don't know, perhaps. And again, looking at how we can make sure the donor is at the forefront of our thinking when we design these processes, because 
they're humans too and we really need to take how they feel about what they're doing into account. A lot of your research hinges around fear and overcoming fears. Is there anything you've had to overcome? Dentists. (laughs) (laughs) Have you managed that yet? Yes, I have. I've been very fortunate to actually uh, have a dentist on campus, uh, so I highly recommend her, um, who just knows that I'm terrified and she's very, very nice to me and I go and see her and she's, she's lovely. So, But it's taken a long time and I think it's sort of experiencing that absolute anxiety. So knowing it's something I should do, but really, really not wanting to do it. Like I'd run if she'd let me, but she doesn't. She locks the door, which I think is rude, but anyway. Um, But knowing I should do it really gave me a better insight into blood donors because I'm one of those very fortunate people that it never bothered me to donate blood. Uh, It it felt great. I got that real warm glow afterwards. I felt like I'd done something for, you know, society and I got my chocky bicky and I got everything and it was great. So I couldn't, that didn't hit home for me. But then when I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, you can't do dentists. And that's what it's like for a lot of people. They want to do something. They want to help. They want to donate blood to, you know, help perhaps help a family member or a friend. They just think if they can add into this, like the collection, that will help. But the fear and the anxiety is just overwhelming. And it gave me a better insight, I think, into into what they may experience. People tend to believe that there's always someone in line behind them to donate if they don't make that appointment. However, blood does have a limited lifespan for use. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so it certainly does have a limited time span. Um, and it's 42 days for red blood cells is all that they last. Um, and I think people think that somewhere in the in the country there's a massive blood bank full of bags and bags that can just be dispatched but we run a real risk if we don't continually get donors through the door that we may run short of certain types of of blood Um, so for example if you think about o negative blood um, that's you know the so-called universal donor can be transfused into everyone so there's always a higher demand for that type of blood uh, than perhaps rather uh, types of blood but the issue is of course There's only a very limited number of people in the country who have O-negative blood. And so what we see is that people really don't understand perhaps the urgency. So this isn't that there's a massive shortage tomorrow or whatever, but that if things happen that mean that people don't come to donate or the opportunities for donation are in somewhat limited, so for example, the Easter uh, period, there's always a, a call, if you like, for people to come forward and donate. And that's because they want to maintain that supply. And if you don't have that, then you do run the risk that, you know, Australia is known for its safe and secure supply of blood, that that may not eventuate. So that limited uh, time span of blood, I think, is something that's really being emphasised now, really to increase people's awareness of it. And we see um, evidence of that and the importance of that in some of the responses to the text messages that now get sent out when blood is dispatched. Um, because obviously that gives you that little kick. You know, you see that your donation has gone somewhere. It's actually going to do some good. The reason you donated is actually coming to, to fruition, and that makes you feel good. But the other response we often see is people say, it's gone really quickly. You know, that's only eight days ago I donated, or seven or six or five. They need it that urgently, and it really reinforces the urgency of keeping people coming through the door to donate blood time and time again. If I go and donate blood, I sit down, I go through the process, I get my cookie at the end, 
what happens to my blood after it's taken from me? Oh, they do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, so obviously there's a lot of process, processing that needs to, to take place and that's done at a number of different places uh, around the country. And then quite literally it waits for the call to come in uh, from a hospital uh, or uh, other places that are, the, are going to need your blood to, to keep uh, just in case something happens. And obviously emergency departments always need to have a ready stock of blood. So it's, it's you know, minimal processing, making sure it's absolutely as it should be so that the safety of the patient is always at the forefront of everyone's mind here. So this blood has to be great and it has to be ready to be transfused, but it's very quickly dispatched uh, and sent out to the hospitals. And you talk about emergency departments there, but interestingly enough, they're not the highest percentage user of no. blood. Um, which when I read that statistic was was um, quite interesting. Who uses our blood more than anyone else? It goes to a lot of different groups. So I think we tend to think when we think of blood donation, we think of accident victims mm -hmm. or we think of uh, I think young babies are the other kind of key thing that comes to mind. I think it's cancer patients. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I can't be 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that, that most uh, blood um, or blood products go towards the treatment of, of cancer patients. And, and it's quite incredible um, the, what can be achieved through the use of blood and blood products. One of the things I find really interesting is the competitive aspect to it. So my husband is a very dedicated donor. He was in a serious accident when he was 19 and needed blood to survive at that stage. So he is a regular donor and he loves the fastest bleeder section that's on the wall at the donor van. So he'll go in chugging water, ready to just get up on that wall, beat all the other scores. Is that something you see a lot of? Certainly we've seen some evidence of that. I mean, it's interesting you note that he's actually don't, he's received blood products because we actually also see a very strong, if you like, family and friends connection to, to blood donors. And it's not been terribly well researched, but obviously there does seem to be some sort of social network factor that comes into play that, you know, if it's happening in your family, if your mum and dad are a donor, for example, you're more likely to become a donor. Um, and similarly, if you've received blood products, then often that motivates you, if you can, or others around you to donate blood. But the, the competitive aspect is really interesting. And certainly um, it's consistent with some of the theories that, that we sort of draw on in this area about why some people would like to donate. So there is a competitive aspect. And it's more typically seen amongst men, actually, the, the, the idea of competing against other people to be the fastest bleeder in this particular <laughs> particular example is um is is really very prevalent and it's, it's an interesting aspect it's difficult to pull on that in terms of an intervention because obviously safety is absolutely key mm -hmm. so you don't want to lose too much blood <laughs> too quickly because that wouldn't end well but you also don't want to encourage bad behavior so you don't want people sort of competing in terms of donations mm. because you need them to stick by the 12 week deferral uh, period or, and, and engage in safe behaviour. So it's an interesting aspect. It's one that we do battle with about how to engage with really well in order to encourage blood donation. So you spoke about the website. Is, is that a great place to go 
to find out more information about giving blood and, and breaking down some of those barriers? Yeah, look, it's a fantastic resource. So the uh, Australian Red Cross uh, Blood Services website, which is donateblood.com.au, is a fantastic resource. It has all sorts of information, frequently asked questions about donating blood. And you can also go on there and ask some questions and find out whether you think you might be eligible. So, for example, if you've been to certain countries, then you're not eligible now, but you will be in a very short period of time. You should definitely try then. But also all sorts of bits of information. But the website also goes beyond that and it talks about all the research that we're doing uh, to help um, blood donors. So it's an incredible resource. um, And really, if you'd like to find out more about donating blood, that's a place to go. And if you'd like to talk to someone, they have a number there that you can call and you can have a chat about whether you could donate blood potentially and where you can go and donate blood. So on the website, you can put in your postcode and it'll show you where the nearest venue is. Uh, So there's all sorts of resources there um, that are fantastic if you think you might be interested in donating blood. So we're going to close the episode with a short segment called Spare Change in which we get to know you a little bit better with some rapid fire questions. So you ready? Here we go. What's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? I'm the first in my family to go to university. What is the one question you're sick of being asked? Do you donate blood? (laughs) We asked that one. (laughs) Okay. If you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? To run your own race, so not to be deterred from what do, from doing what you're passionate about and to remember it's a marathon and not a sprint. Who or what is your biggest influence in life? Two high school teachers, actually. Um, so I was taught by a guy called Sean O'Brien, who's actually quite a famous English poet now, but of course I didn't know that when I was at high school. He was just my English teacher. Uh, and the second person is Nancy Wall, who was my economics teacher at high school. And the reason that I've chosen them both is that they were just passionate. They were mesmerizing when they taught the passion that they had for their subject and their just love of everything that they were doing. It was incredible because these were like high school teachers and why were they so interested? <laughs> but, you know, that passion and that absolute kind of want to know more and more and to help other people learn I found just it made me want to be what they are I'm not a poet and I'm not an economist but I just love teaching and I love researching and I love my subject perfect so the last question is if you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you which song would you play it would be Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Well, that's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Professor Barbara Masser and the Red Cross Blood Service, visit our website at uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.